It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. We hope you enjoy this episode from our series, Famous Fates. It's about the impactful lives and shocking deaths of history's most influential people. To hear even more episodes each week, subscribe to Famous Fates exclusively on Spotify. Hi, everyone. It's your host, Carter Roy. This episode is meant to honor both Kurt Cobain and Courtney Love. Vanessa and I will be acting out the roles of Courtney and Kurt. Now, Kurt was the voice of a generation, and we hope this episode honors him, his loved ones, and his fans. While he died tragically, his impact on pop culture was immense. Without further ado, the life of Kurt Cobain. Rolling Stone said he was the spokesman for Generation X. Time magazine called him the John Lennon of the swinging Northwest. The world knows about grunge music because of him. He thought about suicide a lot, even as a kid. Once, when he was walking home from school, he and his friends saw the body of a boy who had killed himself hanging from a tree. Kurt just stood and stared at it for half an hour before being sent away. What's crazy is that he actually loved Weird Al Yankovic's parody of Smells Like Teen Spirit. Yes, they did. This complicated superstar named Kurt Cobain had a lot of different emotions going on inside of him. And judging from how much he appreciated Weird Al... Kurt actually called him a musical genius. That's right. So one thing we don't often give Kurt Cobain enough credit for is his ironic sense of humor. We have to assume a man whose mind was, sadly, capable of going to so many dark places must have understood that comedy comes from pain. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Carter Roy. Welcome to Famous Fates, a podcast original exclusive to Spotify. Each week, we'll release five fresh episodes centered around a common theme, such as Hollywood icons, influential women, or music legends. In each episode, we'll take a close look at the remarkable life of a different person. With the help of voice actors, we'll dramatize their incredible lives, reimagining their greatest and weakest moments. Then we'll examine their controversial deaths. Some deaths came too soon, some remained shrouded in mystery, and some changed the world forever. Today, we're covering Nirvana frontman Kurt Cobain. He was a leading figure in alternative music, and he can still be heard on the radio today, belting anthems like All Apologies, Come As You Are, and Smells Like Teen Spirit. When he died at age 27, Cobain left the world brimming with questions and conspiracy theories. You can find episodes of Famous Fates and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. To stream Famous Fates for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Famous Fates in the search bar. Famous Fates is a Spotify exclusive, so you can only find it on Spotify. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. 
you allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Now, back to the life of Kurt Cobain. Kurt Cobain tragically took his own life on April 5th, 1994. Fans and the media were left to pick up the pieces. But since Kurt Cobain, the artist, struggled with so many demons in his short life, the story of his death can only be understood in the context of the 27 years that came before he made his fateful decision to leave this world. Kurt Cobain was born in Aberdeen, Washington on February 20th, 1967. He was creatively inclined from a very early age. He learned to play piano as a small boy, and his talent for drawing was so pronounced that even his kindergarten teachers noticed. He also had fun knocking about on a kitty-sized drum kit that his parents had given him. But much like the anxious feelings lying behind the music he would make as a grown-up, there was a shadow side to young Kurt's childhood. His parents did not get along and fought constantly. And it's pretty clear that Kurt was more inclined toward artistic expression than some of the more conventional paths for young kids who have energy to release. Yep. In fact, his dad signed Kurt up for the junior high wrestling team, but Kurt did not exactly um, gravitate to organized sports. Nope. He refused to participate in the wrestling matches and kept his arms folded in protest on the sidelines. He even purposely let himself be pinned just to tick off dad. So he gets signed up for Little League by the old man, and there he would intentionally strike out just so he wouldn't have to play. Seems to me like Kurt just didn't work well in competitive environments. Later on, when we hear his very moving suicide note, we'll hear about how he just couldn't muster any enthusiasm for having become a famous rock star. The poor guy was conflicted right from his boyhood, upset over his parents fighting, and later on, acting out pretty heavily once they divorced and he had to deal with a stepmother that he hated. In a 1993 interview, Cobain said, I remember feeling ashamed for some reason. I was ashamed of my parents. I couldn't face some of my friends at school anymore because I desperately wanted to have the classic, you know, typical family mother, father. I wanted that security. So I resented my parents for quite a few years because of that. Kurt invented an imaginary friend to deal with his troubled life. That's right. Kurt addressed his suicide note to this fictional friend Boda, didn't he? Yes, very sad. Indeed, he called his imaginary friend Boda and would often jokingly blame Boda for some of the trouble Kurt got into as he got increasingly restless and angry in his youth. Which did end up including some vandalism and an arrest or two. It started to get worse once he moved in with his dad and stepmom. Here he is, nine years old, parents divorced, now he's living with a stepmom he can't stand, and he feels like dad always takes her side against him. And where once he was the only boy in the family... He did have a younger sister. Yes, that's right. But he didn't have any male competition in the original childhood household. Now he's got a stepbrother and sister. Plus, his new stepmom has a brand new baby. And his birth mother got involved with another guy who physically abused her. Kurt's feeling pretty pissed off. Mm. But you know, he was so predisposed to creativity that he probably would have found some kind of outlet for his feelings. Luckily, he got that outlet handed to him from his Uncle Chuck. Chuck Freidenberg was a musician who played in a local band called The Beachcombers, and he gave Kurt his first guitar. Kurt took to it right away, finding playing it a welcome relief from his anxiety. I gotta think he was a little more gifted on guitar than I was. Playing the same riff from Smoke on the Water over and over? 
and over and <laughs> over and over. Right. Kurt Cobain did hail from a musical family to some degree. He had an aunt, Mary Earl, who also played guitar and played in bands throughout Kurt's hometown area. And it's from Mary that history has learned of some of young Kurt's favorite boyhood artists and songs. He loved the Ramones. And the Electric Light Orchestra. Seasons in the Sun by Terry Jacks. We had joy, we had fun, we had seasons in the sun. But the hills that we climbed were just seasons out of time. And, wait for it. The theme song from the Monkees TV show. You know what? That's pretty cool, because if you think of his music, it has a lot of ballad qualities to it, along with the hard rock. Mm, Good point. So, anyway, by 1982, Kurt's, what, in his late teens? And he ditches his father's house, bounces around between various relatives, and then discovers... Oh, yeah. Punk rock. Kurt started hanging around with a kind of cult that formed around a local punk band called the Melvins. By now, he's crashing on couches, not living with his family at all, and getting into partying and drugs. But in the process, forming his first band, so there you go. Now his first band was not a hit. I don't see how it could have been given what he called it. Fecal matter. Yep, fecal matter. That takes courage though, really. How so? Well, you gotta figure with a name like that, you're setting up music critics to write about how your music totally fits your name. Uh, Something tells me he didn't care. Fecal matter seems to fit right in with the angry young man who was first making music in the Seattle scene. True. So maybe by the time he comes up with Nirvana, he starts to understand that it has a little more commercial potential. Mm, Plus, from what we know of the turmoil going on inside him, Nirvana is a pretty ironic band name. Sad, but true. So here we are, a couple of years later, and Kurt finds his groove. He renames the band. Did we say it's now called Nirvana? And gets some new personnel. Though not quite yet did that personnel include drummer Dave Grohl, frontman for the band we now know as Foo Fighters. Not quite. Dave would come along during a shakeup in the middle of the tour for Nirvana's first album, Bleach. And we should probably set the historical record straight here. What exactly qualifies as grunge music? Yes, grunge. The style of music that became known around the world thanks to Nirvana. Although it wasn't exclusive to them. It was actually brought to a wider audience by a record label called Sub Pop, who signed a lot of the grunge bands in the Seattle music scene, like Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains, and Stone Temple Pilots. By the way, do you know about Sub Pop's famous rejection letter format? I don't. They're pretty famous in the indie music scene for it. When they turn down an artist's demo and tell them they will not be signed to the sub-pop label, the rejection letter begins with the phrase, Dear Loser. Oh, well, that's just perfect. There is that ironic sense of humor in grunge again. No wonder Kurt Cobain called Weir Al Yankovic a genius. (laughs) But let's get back to grunge. Okay, so we've heard about how influential punk rock was on Kurt Cobain. Grunge is a kind of bridge between punk rock and heavy metal. It incorporated the distorted guitar sound of punk and metal, but also branched out into some slower tempos, the use of harmony in the vocals, and more complex instrumentation that was more common in metal than in punk. Lyrically, though, it was pure punk. Alienation, apathy, feeling hemmed in and wanting freedom from the normal society. All of these things clearly haunted Kurt Cobain. And they totally connected to the young fans of the emerging grunge genre at the time. Did they ever. Young fans were asked for comment the day after Kurt Cobain committed suicide. 
Sometimes I'll get depressed and get mad at my mom or my friends, and I'll go listen to Kurt, and it puts me in a better mood. I thought about killing myself a while ago, too. But then I thought about all the people that would be depressed about it. This is the first band where I ever had somebody die on me. He was a spokesperson for our generation. He represented what we all feel in our lives. I think he'll still be in people's memories and thoughts. I think it'll be eternal, <laughs> or nirvana, if you want to say that. We'll return to our story in just a moment. Now, back to the life of Kurt Cobain. There's no doubt that Kurt Cobain's music reached a lot of people around the world. By the time of the release of Nirvana's second album, Nevermind, on the major label Geffen Records, the impact of the band was undeniable. And something else was undeniable for Kurt Cobain. He had met the woman of his dreams. Actually, Kurt had met Courtney Love when Nirvana was still struggling at a show at the Portland, Oregon nightclub Satyricon. They hit it off, but did not begin a relationship. But we have Nirvana's new drummer, Dave Grohl, to thank for their eventually hooking up. Dave was dating a woman who was friends with Courtney, and she was reintroduced to Kurt through her. Love was by now the lead singer of her own band, Hole, that was also achieving some success. A whirlwind romance started, which included letters, phone calls, and, are you ready for this? Faxes. What are faxes again? <laughs> exactly. Our rock and roll history is also a history of technology, apparently. Two star-crossed rock and roll lovers sending each other love faxes. It must have been pretty dramatic waiting for those pages to come through. <laughs> By February of 1992, the couple was married, and in August, along came their daughter, Frances Bean Cobain. Even the birth of the baby had its share of drama. When Courtney told a Vanity Fair interviewer that she had taken heroin during her pregnancy, the couple was investigated by social services, but eventually won a costly legal battle allowing them to keep their daughter. Mm. There are a lot of conspiracy theories floating around out there about Courtney Love being involved in Kurt's death, but the evidence is to the contrary. As volatile as their relationship was, mostly fueled by their drug use, they seemed to really mean a lot to each other. I'm just happier than I've ever been. I finally met someone that I am totally compatible with. It doesn't matter whether she's male, female, the hermaphrodite or a donkey. We're compatible. All that shit about me and Kurt. She's just a money grabber, a gold digger, bitch, whore, slut. Let's get one thing straight. I adore him. I worship him. I went through nine whole fucking months because I wanted some of his beautiful genes in there. In our child. It's like heavy on water and battery acid. When you mix the two together, you get love. Imagine this. You're peaking. You're in your youth, at the prime of your life. The last thing you want to be is a symbol of heroin use. You finally met up with somebody of the opposite gender who you can write with. That's never happened before in your life. The only other person you could ever write with wasn't as good a writer as you. And this person's a better writer than you. And you're in love. You have a best friend, you have a soulmate, and you can't believe it's happening in your lifetime. And he wants to have babies. And what you want is babies. You've wanted to have babies forever. And he understands everything you say. And he completes your sentences. And he's lazy, but he's spiritual. And he's not embarrassed about praying. He's not embarrassed about chanting. He's not embarrassed about God, Jesus, none of it. He wants to be enlightened, everything. 
And there's even room for you to fix him, which you like because you're a fixer-upper. He's perfect in almost every single way. The only happiness that I ever had. So you listen to the passion and the love and the feeling in these sentences, and then you hear how Courtney Love ended that heartfelt testimonial. The only happiness that I ever had. And then it all gets taken away. It is difficult to pinpoint one starting off point to Kurt Cobain's downward spiral, But there was a night in 1993 where things went off the rails at the home of Kurt and Courtney. No way! I don't want them in the house! Just shut up! Leave me alone! We have a daughter! I don't want guns in this house! Seattle Police! Don't you touch me, Kurt! I'm answering the door. Good evening, ma'am. Is everything all right? We're good, officer. Just a little disagreement. Over what? She won't let me keep guns in the house. He may be a danger to himself, officer. Step aside, ma'am. And the police took the guns from the house that night. Kurt would become increasingly agitated without them, but the downturn in his life was just beginning. By now, Nirvana's new album, In Utero, is released. And even as he continues to use drugs and struggle with his own inner torment, and a chronic stomach condition, too. What was up with that? Apparently, no doctor was ever able to diagnose what Cobain described as his ongoing battles with stomach pain. He supposedly continued his use of heroin, in part to deal with the pain of it. He even mentions it in his suicide note. But so far, no conclusive evidence has ever come to light about what the condition was. Courtney Love, long after her husband had passed, hypothesized that it might have been Crohn's disease. But she also sort of darkly joked in the same interview that Kurt may have been stricken with Cobain's disease. Maybe a reference to the cumulative issues that plagued her late husband. In any case, here they are. Kurt is on tour for In Utero and has even taken the time to perform acoustically in what became a legendary segment of MTV's Unplugged series. Then, in March of 1994, roughly a month before Kurt Cobain left this world, another incident. This one in a hotel room in Rome, where Kurt was taking some time off from the tour with Courtney and Francis Bean. She woke up at 6.30 in the morning and found Kurt unconscious. Kurt? Honey? Come on! Honey, come on! Love later told reporters that Kurt had blood coming out of his nose, and that... I've seen him get really up before, but I have never seen him almost eat it. Cobain was rushed to the hospital in a coma. His doctor said the singer was suffering no permanent damage at the time, and Courtney Love told the press, He's not going to get away from me that easily. I'll follow him through hell. So he pulled through, and the official report stated that it was an accidental overdose. But Cobain had sent the hotel bellboy out to fill a prescription for 50 Rohypnol pills the night before. And all 50 of them were found in his stomach. Rohypnol is a tranquilizer, 10 times more powerful than Valium. Plus, Cobain had left what appeared to be a suicide note behind. A note was found, Hole's manager Janet Billig reported later, but Kurt insisted that it wasn't a suicide note. He was just saying he had taken all of his and Courtney's money and was going to disappear. Who knows what Kurt was thinking that night, but it was really the opening salvo in what we can rightly call his last days. Nirvana's studio producer on Nevermind, Butch Vig, said this of Kurt Cobain. Kurt could just be very outgoing and funny and charming, and half an hour later, he would just go sit in the corner and be totally moody and uncommunicative. And Nirvana's manager, Danny Goldberg, said it perhaps most succinctly. He was a walking time bomb, and nobody could do anything about it. 
We'll return to our story in just a moment. Let's walk you through the final days of the walking time bomb known as Kurt Cobain. Mark Lanigan, a member of Screaming Trees, one of the bands known as the Godfathers of Grunge, was a close friend of Cobain's. When he had not heard from Kurt during what turned out to be the last week of his life, he said, I had a feeling that something real bad had happened. As it happened, Cobain had returned to his home in Seattle after his apparent suicide attempt in Rome. About a week later, Janik Billig reported that Cobain had gone, quote, cuckoo, end quote. And Courtney Love later told MTV that after the Rome debacle, Kurt had told her that he was done with Nirvana. I hate it. I can't play with him anymore. I only want to work with Michael Stipe. Kurt Cobain had become obsessed with Michael Stipe's band R.E.M. In fact, it was later determined that the record Cobain had been listening to when he shot himself was R.E.M.'s Automatic for the People. Everybody hurts sometimes. Stipe and Cobain had been talking a lot about doing a project together in the last few weeks of Kurt's life, but nothing ever got off the ground. Then, on March 18th, came another call to the Seattle Police Department, and this one on an even darker note than the first. Please hurry. My husband has locked himself in the bedroom with a 38 caliber revolver and he says he's going to kill himself. Again, the police confiscated the guns, along with a bottle of various pills. And, once again, Cobain denied that he had planned to kill himself. So now, it's intervention time. Courtney gathered a close circle of friends and business associates around Kurt, They gathered at Cobain's home on Lake Washington Boulevard in Seattle. They put it out on the table, with some members of Nirvana saying they would leave the band unless he cleaned up his act, and Courtney Love said she would leave him if he didn't shape up. Later, she begged Kurt to come with her to Los Angeles, where she was going to detox from tranquilizers. She wanted her husband to go to rehab with her and get better. But when he refused, she made a decision to go without him, and on March 26th, checked into the Peninsula Hotel in Beverly Hills. That decision haunted her, as she later told fans in a taped message after her husband's death. That 80s tough love bullshit. It doesn't work. Now left alone in Seattle, Cobain stopped by the home of one of the very people who had been involved in the intervention, his longtime friend, Dylan Carlson. Kurt wanted Carlson to loan him a gun. He told Carlson he was worried about trespassers on the property. Carlson said Cobain seemed normal and that he didn't think anything of the request because he had given Cobain guns before. He said Kurt probably didn't want to buy a shotgun because he was afraid of trouble after the police had confiscated his guns before. So the two men went to Stan's guns shop and purchased a six-pound Remington 20-gauge shotgun and a box of ammunition. Cobain gave Carlson the cash to buy it. Then, hearing that his friend was going to check himself into rehab, Carlson suggested that maybe he should hold the gun for Kurt until he got back. But Kurt took it home and left it there. Kurt then left Seattle and got a plane to Los Angeles, where he checked himself into the Exodus Recovery Center in Marina del Rey. He lasted two days. While he was still there, knowing his wife Courtney Love was not far away at the Peninsula Hotel, he called her to offer his support on the upcoming release of Hole's new album, Live Through This. Courtney, no matter what happens... I want you to know that you made a really good record. Okay. Well, what do you mean? Just remember, no matter what, I love you. According to witnesses, Cobain bailed out of the clinic of his own volition an hour later, looking strong and happy. He told the clinic staff that he was stepping onto the patio for a smoke and then scaled the six-foot brick wall surrounding the facility and ran away. 
Cobain seemed to vanish. Nobody could get a hold of him, not even his mother. Police reports suggest that Cobain simply wandered around town in his final days, wearing the hunting cap that he put on when he didn't want anyone to recognize him. Some neighbors would later report that they spotted Cobain in a park near his house, looking ill and ragged. Then came April 5th. Cobain went into the greenhouse he kept above his garage and barricaded himself inside by propping a stool against the French doors. He threw his wallet on the floor, open to his driver's license. Friends say they'd felt Kurt probably did this to aid in identifying his body. Cobain dragged a chair to a window that overlooked Puget Sound. He found the cigar box in which he kept his drug paraphernalia and rummaged around in it. He found the heroin, large quantities of which were found in his system at post-mortem. He pressed the barrel of the recently purchased 20-gauge shotgun to his head and cocked back the trigger. He positioned his thumb awkwardly against the trigger, and he fired. Hello? Hello? The body, later identifiable only by its fingerprints, was found by an electrician several days after Cobain died. The electrician had come to install a new security system in the house. The electrician's name was Gary Smith, and since that day, he has refused all requests for interviews about his gruesome discovery. Something else was discovered at the scene, of course. Kurt Cobain's suicide note. And here, on Remarkable Lives, Tragic Deaths, we bring you the expurgated contents of that sad, powerful, enigmatic last testament from Kurt Cobain. To Boda. Speaking from the tongue of an experienced simpleton who obviously would rather be an emasculated, infantile, complainee, this note should be pretty easy to understand. All the warnings from the Punk Rock 101 courses over the years, since my first introduction to the, shall we say, ethics involved with the independence and the embracement of your community, has proven to be very true. I haven't felt the excitement of listening to, as well as creating music, along with reading and writing for too many years now. I feel guilty beyond words about these things. For example, when we're backstage and the lights go out and the manic roar of the crowd begins, it doesn't affect me the way in which it did for Freddie Mercury, who seemed to love, relish in the love and adoration from the crowd, which is something I totally admire and envy. The fact is, I can't fool you, any one of you, simply isn't fair to you or me. The worst crime I can think of would be to rip people off by faking it and pretending as if I'm having 100% fun. And sometimes I feel as if I should have a punch-in time clock before I walk out on stage. I've tried everything within my power to appreciate it, and I do, God, believe me, I do. But it's not enough. I appreciate the fact that I and we have affected and entertained a lot of people. I must be one of those narcissists who only appreciate things when they're gone. I'm too sensitive. I need to be slightly numb in order to regain the enthusiasms I once had as a child. In our last three tours, I've had a much better appreciation for all the people I've known personally and as fans of our music but I still can't get over the frustration, the guilt and empathy I have for everyone 
There's good in all of us. And I think I simply love people too much. So much that it makes me feel too f***ing sad. The sad, little sensitive, unappreciative Pisces. Jesus, man. Why don't I just enjoy it? I don't know. I have a goddess of a wife who sweats ambition and empathy and a daughter who reminds me too much of what I used to be. Full of love and joy. Kissing every person she meets because everyone is good and will do her no harm. And that terrifies me to the point where I can barely function. I can't stand the thought of Francis becoming the miserable, self-destructive death rocker that I've become. I have a good, very good, and I'm grateful, but since the age of seven, I've become hateful towards all humans in general, only because it seems so easy for people to get along that have empathy, only because I love and feel sorry for people too much, I guess. Thank you all from the pit of my burning, nauseous stomach for your letters and concern during the past years. I'm too much of an erratic, moody baby. I don't have the passion anymore. So remember, it's better to burn out than to fade away. Peace, love, empathy. Kurt Cobain. Francis and Courtney, I'll be at your altar. Please keep going, Courtney, for Francis, for her life which will be so much happier without me. I love you. I love you. So tragic. Unbelievable. The part that got me was when he said he couldn't stand how his little daughter reminded him of himself when he was little, and it was too much for him. I know. It's like he's admitting that he really was happy for a very short time, and then that was it. I was also struck by the idea that he wanted so badly to appreciate all the money and fame he had, but he couldn't do it. These are things we all dream about having, but I guess for some, it's a nightmare. I suppose we could blame it all on the drug abuse, but that's a slippery slope. And it certainly is, at least according to Chris Novoselic, the bass player for Nirvana. He told reporters, just blaming it on Smack is stupid. Smack was just a small part of his life. He makes a good point. Taking drugs can often be a reaction to pain that has been going on inside for a long time. They're a part of the problem, but they're only one symptom. So many friends and fellow musicians have weighed in on the passing of Kurt Cobain over the years. Dave Grohl said, When Kurt died, I was lost. I was numb. The music I had devoted my life to had now betrayed me. I had no voice. I turned off the radio. I put away my drums. I couldn't bear to hear someone else's voice singing about pain or joy. Aerosmith's Steve Tyler said, Kurt's wounds were so deep that when the music floated to the surface after being filtered through his soul, it was incorporeal. Even the late, great David Bowie, about a year after Cobain's death, offered, I was simply blown away when I found out that Kurt Cobain liked my work, and I always wanted to talk to him about his reasons for covering The Man Who Sold the World. It was a good, straightforward rendition, and sounded somehow very honest. It would have been nice to have worked with him. But in Pete Townsend's words, we get a hint of the other side of Kurt's legacy. I mourn for Kurt, a once beautiful, then pathetic, lost and heroically stupid boy. Hard rock indeed. Yeah, it's that idea of the stupidity of it that also tweaks some people. 
A lot of fans thought not only about the loss Courtney Love suffered, but that Cobain had left a little daughter behind without a father. Mm. One fan who worked at Tower Records in Los Angeles and was asked to comment after news of Cobain's death broke said, I'm so disappointed in him. I think it's a very bad example to set. I know life gets bad, but not this bad. And he had the power and the money to disappear and take care of himself. Just think if some poor kid is sad and puts on a Nirvana album and thinks, hey, if he did it. Oddly prophetic words, since at least two suicides that occurred shortly after Cobain's death were said to be linked to the singer. One, a 28-year-old attendee of the memorial vigil for Cobain held near Seattle Space Needle, who went home that night and shot himself. And another in Turkey, where tragically, a 16-year-old girl locked herself in her room and shot herself, with Nirvana music cranking. The girl's friends said she had been inconsolable since hearing of Cobain's death. By dying at age 27, Kurt Cobain, whether on purpose or not, we will never know, joined the ranks of other legends who died at that age. Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison, Jimi Hendrix, and the Rolling Stones' Brian Jones all died at the age of 27. Mm. And in perhaps the most telling and sad commentary of all, it was Kurt Cobain's own mother who, upon hearing of her son's suicide, said, Now he's gone and joined that stupid club. I told him not to join that stupid club. But it was a club Kurt Cobain seemed destined to join. Even as a teenage boy, he bragged to a classmate that he would become a superstar musician, get rich and famous, and then kill himself and go out in a blaze of glory like Jimi Hendrix. And what might be the most ironic and poignant aspect of this whole story of a rock and roll legend, Cobain was unaware of the fact that Hendrix's death was ruled accidental and not a suicide at all. Thanks for listening. You can find more episodes of Famous Fates and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Famous Fates is a Spotify exclusive. Well, not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easier for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Famous Fates for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Famous Fates on Spotify, just open the app and type Famous Fates in the search bar. Remember, it's a Spotify exclusive, so you can only find the show right here. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. If you want to hear more episodes like this, subscribe to Famous Fates, available exclusively on Spotify.